Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Julia Spare's Moving Markets podcast and a happy new year to everybody. It's another special episode for you today. Our regular Moving Markets podcast will be back in the usual format on Thursday, the 4th of January. But this morning, we'd like to highlight another of Julia Spare's Beyond Markets podcasts. I'm sure we all noticed higher prices in the supermarkets last year. So I found this a really interesting conversation that Emily Rookwood, our head of publications, and Carsten Menke, head of Next Generation Research, had on the topic of food inflation and food security. Carsten, welcome to the studio. First of all, against the backdrop of the current cost of living crisis, why are we seeing such huge price jumps and missing items in the aisles? Thanks very much for having me, Emily. Yeah, the cost of a living crisis, I think it's quite a complex topic with many moving parts. Uh, it includes the after effects of the pandemic, still three years on, um, various sorts of supply chain disruptions, and last but not least, of course, also the energy crisis or the war in Ukraine, however you want to put it. Last year, when food inflation peaked in most parts of the world, we have witnessed quite a perfect storm as these moving parts came together pushing up food prices between 5% in parts of Asia and more than 15% or up to 20%, as you said, in the beginning in parts of Europe. Regarding the missing items in the aisles, um, I have to say that here in Switzerland, I didn't experience it. Um, but I've heard it from friends and family in Germany where pasta was missing, flour was missing, canned food was missing. And I think this was because of hoarding, right? So the Germans typically were afraid that they could run out of food because of the war in Ukraine. Another example actually is, is the UK, uh, where I think cucumbers, tomatoes, and other fresh vegetables were missing. And apparently this was due to the fact that the British supermarkets were not willing to pay the prices the farmers asked for. This is more of a special situation, which to my understanding was, was not the case uh, elsewhere in Europe. Certainly for me, this was the first time that I'd ever noticed going shopping and I couldn't find yeast, for example, to make bread. How did we get to this point? Well, I think certainly food inflation has been hitting the headlines only last year, but it's not a new phenomenon. So following the agriculture markets, uh, we realized that prices started rising already a couple of years ago based on the, the closely watched United Nations Food Price Index. So in 2020, uh, farmers had disappointing harvest due to poor weather conditions. So that summer, uh, most of the world was actually hit by a heat wave. It also suffered from a lack of rain, so really very, very poor conditions for farmers that weighed on yields and reduced crop sizes. So Europe's Black Sea region, for example, reported a 30% decline in yields versus the previous season. And a similar pattern was also seen in the United States, where the size of the corn and the soybean crops fell by 5% and 20% year-on-year. At the same time, uh, demand from China picked up again. So in 2018-19, there was a swine flu which weighed on demand and recovered. So it was a little bit of an unfortunate combination uh, that year. And then in 2021, uh, warmer and drier weather conditions persisted. But harvests actually returned to record levels. Uh, corn and soybean demand from China stayed strong. And then it was rising fertilizer prices, which put the upside pressure on agriculture products. And this rise in fertilizer prices reflected an energy crunch in China, where domestic coal mining was capped and natural gas was used instead. 
more upside pressure on fertilizer prices was then added by the European Union, which sanctioned Belarus because of its allies with Russia and it being a very important uh, exporter of potash fertilizer. It's quite the list. It <laughs> quite is, the it list is of indeed, previous yeah. shocks. But how do those shocks then compare to the ones that we've had recently? So primarily the extreme weather and yeah. the war in Ukraine. Oh, the list goes on, right? So the next shock was obviously the war in Ukraine uh, in 2022. Uh, Ukraine is known as Europe's breadbasket because of these very, very fertile soils in the Black Sea region. And yeah, initially it was a state of shock for the agriculture markets because the, the initial fear was that Ukraine would be completely cut off from international markets due to the fighting, due to a lack of farm workers, uh, and also damaged or unavailable infrastructure. Well, fortunately, some of these fears proved to be overdone. Uh, so Ukraine was able to export agricultural products, even though at lower volumes and a much more fragile basis. And how does that look now that Russia recently cancelled the Ukrainian grain deal? Yeah, this has put things a little more into, into limbo again, uh, because this grain deal was really instrumental as an, as an export venue, because it allowed um, Ukraine to ship grains via the Black Sea, which is the main export route without running the risk of being attacked by Russian forces. So now uh, shipments from ports are down again massively. We've also seen the attacks on port infrastructure, uh, stoking renewed fears of supply shortages. That said, markets uh, seem more relaxed at the moment, so corn and wheat prices are still trending lower because globally supplies seem more than sufficient. Now, because I'm British, I want us to go back to the weather. Sure. So, <laughs> so what about the weather? Let's talk about that next. Well, the weather, that's, uh, that's always a very sensible topic uh, nowadays. And uh, well, as a starting point, I think swings in the weather have always been the single most important factor influencing prices of agricultural goods. So almost each and every spike in prices during the past 30 or 40 years was driven by the weather, i.e. harvest shortfalls due to droughts. And the risk of extreme weather conditions, I think that's also not a secret, has certainly risen during the past few years, and this is a massive impact on agriculture. There is really no doubt about that. Yet, uh, we don't have any empirical evidence that these kinds of weather risks are lastingly lifting food prices. So we are not yet observing climate inflation, which is the buzzword which we, which we hear about it, which would be a sustained weather-related price premium. Uh, but this is certainly a concept which we are which we are monitoring. Last but not least, there is also El Nino hitting the headlines uh, more lately. And without going into all the detail, El Nino is generally associated with warmer than average weather. It causes drier conditions in Australia, Southern Asia, Northern Latin America and Southern Africa, threatening harvests and affecting economic activity. That said, also here, analyzing all El Nino periods of the past decades, we could not find a systemic and structural positive impact on agriculture prices. So from our point of view, we should Definitely be mindful about the impact weather, but not fearful. I imagine many listeners will be uh, reassured by that message uh, after such a strange summer. But where does all of that leave us in the short term? I think it, it's still a very, very unpleasant situation, right? So food prices rising by double digits, energy prices still up. That's very, very unpleasant for consumers. 
But what we may still say is the following. So first, um, the United Nations food price index is down more than 20% from its peak and it should fall further. And this is obviously good news for the consumer, not least as this should spread more broadly into the food supply chain. Second, another important cost component of the food supply chain is obviously energy. This one has also rolled over, so that impact should also reverse uh, we should get some relief from lower energy prices going forward. And the third one is uh, the following. So we should not forget that the supply response in agriculture is very swift. Right? So farmers, they have the ability to plant, to replant new crops, which is why we always say that high prices are the best cure for high prices. And in the long term then, what are the implications of all of this? How concerned should we really be uh, about food security, considering that the global population is obviously growing yeah. uh, and that available agricultural land is shrinking? Well, the topic of food security goes well beyond the topic of food inflation, I would say. And to illustrate this point, let me ask you a question, Emily. Do we need low or high food prices to feed a global population of 10 billion? Most people would assume low prices from a consumer perspective, but then when you're looking at the farmer's perspective... Probably exactly. not so good, huh? Indeed. So low is the answer if you think about those who currently struggle to pay for their food and who may suffer from malnutrition as a result, right? But high is the answer if you think about those who are supposed to produce the food, the farmers, because they need the money to make the investments in order to produce sufficient supplies. So it's it's really uh, not an easy topic, not at all. Um, so financial affordability comes to first when thinking about food security, obviously, but the topic is also actually related to physical availability. And that's especially the case in developing countries. And if we start first with a financial point of view, um, we can analyze how much we are actually spending on food. And looking at the year 2021, that's the most recent data we have for the United States, uh, it's 7%. So 7% of all your expenditures go to food. And it's 17% in Japan. So it's not, obviously not the majority. And if we dive more deeply into the spending patterns in the US, we find that there are other items which are bigger and which have risen faster. So rent, for example, healthcare, for example. So it's not necessarily the food element which is constraining the spending power or the discretionary spending in the United States. And what about in developing countries? If we look at developing countries, emerging countries, it's it's a very different picture. Uh, so food there claims a much higher share of the people's total expenses. So 16% in Brazil is rather the lower end, but it goes as high as 60% in Nigeria or other parts of Africa. So here, people are much more vulnerable to food inflation, but also to food insecurity, partly because of income levels, but partly also because of factors that are more associated with physical availability. Do you think you might be able to give us a few examples of the, the impact of this physical availability of food, especially in these different countries? So there are quite a few factors that, that we could talk about here, but let's focus on two, which are, I would say, the most important ones in developing countries. First, conflicts and corruption. Obviously, conflicts impede the proper functioning of economies, including the production and distribution of food, as well as the income generation of consumers. Corruption impacts food producers as their access to valuable resources such as land and water 
may require the payment of bribes, which then drains the funds and limits their ability to invest in farm machinery or critical infrastructure. Second, there's politics and trade barriers. So global trade, a uh, global trade of agriculture has grown from 15% to 25% during the past few decades. And this is important because it really bridges the gap between producers on the one side and consumers. And this is also despite significant trade barriers in many countries. So that's all for today then. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To listen to this conversation in full, you can search for Panic in the Isles, How Secure is Our Food Future on the Beyond Markets channel. The usual Moving Markets show returns on Thursday, the 4th of January, but do tune in again tomorrow when we'll be sharing more interesting insights from our recent podcasts. Bye for now. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliasbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further other important legal information. Für unsere deutschsprachigen Zuhörer. We would also like to make you aware of Marktanalysen und Gespräche, a monthly podcast in German, where Julius Baer experts discuss some of the latest market developments. We share our key research and insights on today's ever-changing economic landscape in German. Search for Marktanalysen und Gespräche on your favorite podcast player.